0: Hey guys, my name is Alex, and this is the Thousand Movie Project podcast. This week, I like to quote on somebody's Instagram story. I clicked on the response bar, and I sent a little applause emoji. She responded to the emoji with a full paragraph of text, elaborating on what the quote meant to her. So I responded with a paragraph of my own. A few minutes after that, she responds with two paragraphs. Shortly after that, I respond to her two paragraphs with a single paragraph, maybe 40 words, whereupon she writes back almost immediately, I have enjoyed this conversation. And suddenly it's over. I have enjoyed this conversation, period, end quote, which for some reason puts me on edge because it was so abrupt and so I I got a little nervous and and I was like, did I overstay my welcome? But no, I I don't see how either way. Removing myself from the situation, I do kind of like how she ended it. Just, I have enjoyed this conversation and then bounce. I think I'm gonna start using this. Like anytime a conversation turns toward me having to take accountability for something, I'm just gonna throw up my hands and just, I have enjoyed this conversation and then it's over. Sir, do you realize how fast you were going? I have enjoyed this conversation. (coughs) Alex, he came out wearing flannel. This baby is obviously yours. I have enjoyed this conversation. No, what are you gonna do with this? Just (laughs) use it as a transition. I had a sex dream a few nights ago where I was having sex, first of all, let me say, with an adult woman. I've got this colleague who's in his 80s. Call him Peter. And Peter's got four sons, the youngest being about my age and still living with him way up in West Palm Beach, about a 100 miles north of here. And Peter, the old man, doesn't drive anymore, because his eyes are bad. He actually can't read anymore, either, unless he wears his own special glasses and holds the page right up to his nose. Sometimes he'll hand me things that need his signature, and I'll scribble a few loops on the dotted line. Every few months, he goes to a clinic in Pinecrest where they inject some solution into his eyeballs. Given the poverty of his eyes and the length of his commute, Peter lives at the mercy of public transit, and he's always crashing on people's couches here in town at the age of 82, so that he can teach something like ten classes across five different campuses. He's always asking for rides. This was a way bigger issue a couple years ago when, ironically, I lived right here in town. He'd come to the tutoring lab where I work, and he'd ask me to take him home, and always hasten to say that his place is right along the route that I probably drove home anyways. Peter apparently thought that I rode like a deflating balloon in zigzags through the night sky, like I, his apartment was not on my way home. Every night though, his head of long white hair would pop through the doorway, Alex, can I catch a ride? So I start driving him home on the regular. Nice conversation along the way, he's an agreeable dude, pretty funny, I can't rightly say it's a problem to be driving him home each night. But then he makes it a problem. One night, we're getting in the car, and he says to me, Hey, can we stop at Walgreens for a minute? We stop at Walgreens. I wait in the car. Peter comes out a couple minutes later with a pack of reds. I didn't know you smoke. This is especially odd on account of his much younger wife died of lung cancer just a few years ago. I don't, he says, lowering himself into the passenger seat. They're for Travis! Travis is his youngest son. The only son he had with the wife who died of lung cancer. A lung cancer that was caused by decades of smoking. Smoking, as I'm told by colleagues who know the story better, the same brand of cigarettes that the widower now buys for their only son. But that's not my business. I drive him home. He struggles to get out of the car, and tells me, as he's closing the door, that he loves me. A few nights later. Can we stop at Walgreens real quick? This is now a daily thing. There's probably some personal reason why he keeps asking me, since he knows I'm going to stop there anyway, but it's fine. We stop at Walgreens, and he buys a pack of cigarettes for his young son, and then we drive, drive... And as we're about to turn into his building, wait, sorry, can we just stop at Starbucks just a second? The Starbucks is a block away. We go there. Sitting in the parking lot, he calls his son Travis to ask the boy if he wants anything from, quote, Starbuckies. Travis says yeah, says he'd like this particular thing. So Peter goes in and comes out a few minutes later with only that thing. I'd been thinking that he needed to go to Starbucks for something that he had maybe promised his son he would bring home earlier. Maybe he needed a bag of coffee grinds for the morning. But no. He got an impulse to do someone else a favor, and then he used me to do it. I am officially his chauffeur, chasing his whims, helping him to provide for his son the things that he cannot provide on his own. A few nights later, we've got a new routine. Walgreens for smokes, Starbucks for a drink, and then the Cuban bakery next door to Starbucks so that he can get a sandwich for his 24-year-old son who apparently cannot cook. The son who, each night, is presented with a bounty of treats from his elderly father. Tobacco, a tall sugar drink, and fatty sandwiches. The sandwiches take 10 to 15 minutes to prepare. Driving him home each night has become a 45-minute detour. I start getting annoyed with the stops. Peter and I are talking less and less as I drive. I say passive-aggressive things that I shouldn't, and he responds with passive aggression. There is now a nightly tension. One night, and this is about a half hour till quitting time, I'm standing in the tutoring center, and I'm stressing out, because I've got a date, and I don't get many of those. I'm supposed to meet this woman in Coral Gables at nine, so when Peter comes into the lab that evening to ask if he can get a ride home, I tell him, yeah, but we can't make any stops. He says, well, I need to just stop at Walgreens, at least. I shake my head. He's smiling at me, but the smile isn't friendly, and he says, we can't make one stop? When has it ever taken more than five minutes? I say, no stops tonight, Peter. Take it or leave it. Peter huffs at me and storms out of the lab. So begins the month-long silence between us. Peter doesn't ask me to drive him home for what feels like forever, until one day, he tears his meniscus, and now he can't quite manage the bus. The following Monday, with crutches and a knee brace, Peter comes hobbling up to my desk, as though nothing ever happened, and says, Hey, you going my way tonight? And I guess my reward for taking him home is that I become the only person in the department to learn of how he tore his meniscus, which, apparently, was a very sensitive subject, something he allegedly kept secret even from his son, on account of he, Peter himself, was embarrassed about tearing his meniscus. He's afraid of seeming like a feeble old man. And also, he was naked at the time that it happened, and doing something totally innocuous, and suddenly his meniscus just went fuck off and snapped. And so he's having something of an existential moment about it, there in my car, just shaking his head a lot, telling me, without eye contact, that he's having a hard time accepting the fact that, having been such a virile, active young man, he's now, quote, at that age where I could literally be doing nothing at all, and then some part of me just fucking explodes. His crutches make the stops at the drugstore and the cafe and the bakery take twice as long. By the time I pull up to his front door, he's sweating. Finally, fortunately... A student sweeps in and lifts the burden. An unbearably religious, lanky, talkative 28-year-old realtor named Michael becomes obsessed with old man Peter in a creepy way that Peter, who's nothing if not industrious, uses to his advantage. Michael never wants to be away from Peter. And Peter now has a constant chauffeur. And I am off the hook. That was two years ago. I've agreed to drive Peter to maybe four different places since then, and sure enough, he's an agreeable passenger. Makes decent small talk, tells me stories, we talk about old movies. He's a pleasant guy. He does have an edge though, and he can be condescending if the mood strikes him. Ungrateful, curt, presumptuous, sexist, impatient, entitled. I kinda don't like driving him home, but I think that part of me keeps doing it because I enjoy not liking it. This past Saturday, I get a text from a colleague about an hour before my shift begins. It's 8 a.m., and he says that Peter's been in and out, looking for me. When I get to the office, Peter's waiting there, and he comes up to my desk, and he starts chatting me up. He says, hey, come have a seat with me, chat with me. We've got no students yet, so I go ahead and join him at one of the tables, pour him a shot of coffee. He starts telling me stories. He's all animated. Big, sweeping gestures, impersonations, chuckles. He's telling me about his years in the Peace Corps in Jamaica, and one of his stories, for instance, is about the time these five guys once surrounded him with guns as he was getting out of his car, shouting and grabbing at his shirt, and when they finally pulled him down onto the pavement, the leader of the group spoke up clearly and said, Give us all your money. Peter, worried at first but then exasperated, simply pointed at his 20-year-old Nissan and said, You see this piece of shit I'm driving? You think I got any money? Everybody laughs. One of the muggers helps him to his feet and gives him a high five. Later that week, he sees one of the gunmen at a marketplace, and they wave. Stories on stories on stories. He's asking me about myself, and it seems normal, polite. But of course, it's neither of those things, and I should know better. Because Peter has never asked me a sincere question about myself that wasn't some avenue toward figuring out if he could finagle a certain kind of favor out of me. But I'm gullible, and I let myself get suckered into it so that I'm all buttered up when he leaves. And I'm still kind of buttered up when he comes back in, a few minutes before closing, and sits across the table from me while I'm talking with a colleague who's standing up at a podium, and then Peter interrupts our conversation to say, boy, I did something real stupid today. His demeanor is different from earlier. I'm feeling an old familiar dread. I say to him, what'd you do, Peter? I forgot my billfold at home. I guess it takes me a minute to process what that word means, so I just sit there. Peter drums his fingers on the tabletop. What are you gonna do? Good question. I say, where are you staying tonight? Broward. How far is that from your home? About an hour. I nod. Peter nods. I say, so when are you going home? Not till Tuesday night. This, remember, is Saturday morning. So you've got no money for four days? Nope. So how are you going to eat? Peter shrugs, pops his eyebrow in a hopeless way. Can't you get your son to bring you money? Well, see, he doesn't have money. He sounds flustered to be saying this. I think he knows I'm not a fan of his kid, and that he maybe thinks I'm prompting him to say this in order to humiliate him. I support Travis. He doesn't have anything. I say, okay, but he lives at your apartment. Can't he bring you your money? I don't want to bother him. Peter, it's a one-hour drive. He's got a car and you need help. Why not? Peter waves it away, folds his arms over his chest. I want him there. I don't want him driving around. I say, so you're going to starve for all these days because you don't want your kid to have to spend two hours in traffic. Peter shrugs, looks hard at me. I guess so, unless I can find some money. I squint at him. You're asked are you asking for money? It comes out half statement, half question. If you've got any to loan me, it'd sure help. I look at him for a long time, then I look at my colleague, and then kind of on autopilot, I lean over and pull my wallet and give Peter all the cash I have, 30 bucks. It's a good portion of all the money I have in the world right now. Peter takes my $30 and four singles from my colleague, And he folds the stack of bills three ways and tucks them into his pocket and says, in his condescending way, that he's always known we were stand-up guys and that he loves us, and then he struggles to his feet and shrugs into his backpack, tucks his thumbs into the straps on his chest, and moseys out the door with his twisted little gait, tilted to the left because his back's all fucked up from a jeep accident in the 60s. Peter's feet are always pointed in different directions than the one that he's walking in. There's a silence in the lab after he's gone. My colleague, Ralph, is smirking and shaking his head. I'm touching my eyebrow. In the future, I tell myself, I will be glad that I did this. An old man needed money, and I gave him all the cash in my wallet. I did a good thing. I did a very good thing. But I can't help ask myself, why am I so fucking angry right now? Peter tells me later to pop into his class the following Saturday so I can get reimbursed. And I grumble about it, but I agree. A week goes by. On the Saturday morning in question, I show up to the lab, I put my bag down, I clock in, and then hurry downstairs to collect my cash. There's a note on Peter's door. Class is canceled until next week. A week goes by. The next Saturday morning, I get to work, I run up to the lab, I put my bag down, I clock in, and then I hurry downstairs to Peter's class where he's looking very frail, and he's talking in something of a murmur. I sit by for a moment until class ends, and then, when he's coming out, we walk and talk and he says that he had two stents put into his heart last night. This brings him up to six stents over the past 18 years. After telling me this in a somber tone, he allows for an equally somber pause, and then breaks it by saying, Well, here's your money. Out comes the billfold. He starts thumbing through it. Part of me wants to tell him, No, it's fine, that I don't need the money. But I do need the money. So I stand there while he counts it with a trembling hand, And I start thinking seriously about finding another gig. Peter goes on popping in and out of the lab every Saturday for the rest of the semester, and for all that he gets on my nerves sometimes when I think of how manipulative he can be. And while I've made some scathing judgments about his parenting style that I really ought to keep to myself, the old man's got a charm to him. He's a hippie in his marrow, a retired minister who preaches on occasion but has never mentioned at the office a single thing about his beliefs unless somebody asks. When somebody does ask about his beliefs, he answers, but he keeps it vague. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that this is his way of being discreet, and that his discretion is a virtue, even though I'm well aware that what it actually might reflect is like a closet atheism, and it might be a sign that his Christian sermons are pure performance, an opportunity for this man who feels otherwise, you know, hobbled and ignored to go up and stand in the spotlight for a while. But I'm not going to be cynical about this, so yeah, let's just say that it's a, it's a virtuous kind of discretion. One of the things that makes me uneasy about Peter is that he isn't really curious about anything, which, I mean, he's 82 years old. He he doesn't need to be. Fran Liebwitz says in Scorsese's documentary Public Speaking that one of the upsides to being in her 60s is that she finally knows everything. She elaborated on this in a subsequent interview where she said that, of course, she doesn't know every fact in the world. What she meant is that nothing can surprise her anymore. Acts of cruelty or stupidity or altruism that might have confounded her in her 20s and 30s and 40s are now old hat she's seen it all before. The faces change, but the world stays the same. And I figure Peter feels the same way about his life. He espouses no intellectual curiosity, because no matter what you pitch to him, he feels, rightfully so, that he's seen it all before. There's that, and getting more precious of his time as he's gotten older, he's probably just got a solid idea at this point of his life about what's worth learning and what isn't, the things that apply to him and the things that don't. But still... I'm kind of bothered by the way he draws upon the same batch of experiences and uses them as a template by which to understand everything. You'll never hear Peter quote somebody, unless he's recounting how that person praised him, and you'll never hear him refer to somebody else's experience or ideas as if they were things that inform his way of life, his way of thinking. You would imagine, by how he tells it, that his life accorded him no lessons, that he failed at nothing, that as a pup fresh from the womb, he was every bit the man he is today wise and relaxed. He tells stories of how women were so much in love with him, and how his employers were dazzled by his work, and he talks about the impacts he's had on the lives of so many thousands. You'll never hear him say a word about shortcoming or about failure. And I guess the reason I get so worked up is because I'm kind of scared of becoming a person who does this kind of thing who one day just completely tunes out the world and relies exclusively on his own firsthand experiences of his immediate vicinity and of his immediate neighbors and uses those experiences as the context for understanding the entire world beyond it. And yet, at the same time, I do sympathize with Peter's choice to leave other people's experiences and and their voices at the door, because while it's definitely a virtue to embrace the voices of other people, it'd be prudent to keep in mind that along with their voices come their judgments And if you are leading, and enjoying, a lifestyle that causes little or no serious harm to anybody, but it's nonetheless a lifestyle you know some people would raise their eyebrows about, I can understand, and I can even see some good sense in, the choice to ignore the larger world. It isn't really a fair exchange, after all, is it? That the world should always influence you without your being able to influence it. And so Peter, who's setting his sons up for disaster on the day that he dies, when they suddenly have nobody to prop them up, goes on living his life without the input of other people, who might caution him against this lifestyle that brings him so much pleasure and whose damage at this point can't be undone anyhow. He doesn't read or watch the news or really pursue any kind of active learning, but he does teach. He believes in the sharing of ideas. He practices the sharing of ideas, but it's a one-way transaction. He'll tell you what he thinks and feels, and it isn't just that he doesn't want to hear your thoughts in return, nor even the fact that he wouldn't listen if you presented them. It's that he's reached a point in his life where he appears to be incapable of listening. It's toxic, it's self-absorbed, it's naive, it's hard-earned. Today, for the first time, I saw a homeless man taking a shit on the sidewalk. It was in a place that you could conceivably call discreet. It was a sidewalk with very little foot traffic, and he chose a spot that's flanked by two tall hedges. I was passing by on the sidewalk with which his sidewalk and at that moment it was very much his sidewalk intersects. I glanced to my right as I was passing by, and seeing what appeared to be a grown man taking a very big shit in broad daylight, I stopped. Not because this is normally the kind of thing that I like to watch, it appears rather that the sight of a bottomless man squatting on a Brickell Avenue sidewalk at 8am is a sight that, if not exactly appetizing or arousing or attractive, does need to be registered. So I stopped, a little more abruptly than I should have, and for 3 or 4 seconds, without quite knowing why, I watched him poop. Almost immediately, given that hasty stop of mine, the pooping man looked up at me. We held eye contact. And I just stayed there. Don't ask me why. I stayed there and looked at him, and he looked at me, and he said, what are you looking at? And I gaped for a moment, and I, I blinked really fast, well, and I was th- trying to think of an answer, and I said, I I, I have enjoyed this conversation. It, 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 the original baby was so fake. That's what made it so funny. It was a girl that Rolly had never, like, he did not remember her name at all. And she walks into the bar, and she goes, Rolly! And he just blanked underneath name and he goes, BABY! It was him being an asshole. He didn't know her (laughs) name. I'm sort of happy to report that what you're hearing in the background are not the sounds of El Pub, or Araji's Bakery No. 2, or some other 8th Street diner where I'm forcing some grease trap of a sandwich into my mouth. They're the sounds, rather, of an Italian bistro just off of Brickell Avenue called North Italia. It's a Sunday afternoon, and this is a part of my ritual. First I go to Pasión del Cielo and do a little writing, read a few pages from The New Yorker over a Cuban espresso, and then I come here for what I tell myself will be a single can of Sierra Nevada's Hazy Little Thing IPA, but always turns into two or three. Friendly servers at a clean hardwood bar serve their beer in a frosted glass, and with the back wall of the bar being a window that opens to sunlight and a breeze, there's something Edenic about it, open and bright, something very Sunday. That my Sunday ritual should routinely rack up a $30 bill is kind of absurd, considering my situation, But I defend its indulgence on grounds that, for all of my searching in books and movies and the high places and the low, I never did find Jesus. And each week, being a blessing all its own, a guy's gotta have some way of seeing the old one out and the new one in... been listening to the thousand movie project podcast if you like what you heard make sure to follow us on facebook and on instagram and to check out our blog posts every single day on www.thousandmovieproject.com while you're at it be sure to subscribe to the podcast and if you're interested check out our little ebook called horny nuns which is available on amazon for a buck if you'd like to get in touch with me personally you can do so through a little tab at the top of the website it says talk to me and remember while you're at it to have a nice day